You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of James. Here's Nate. The grace and the favor of God is just one of the most incredible things a human being can experience uh, in this life and I believe in the next. Uh, Grace means that which brings delight, joy, happiness, good fortune. In the Bible, the word grace is used to describe favor and kindness and friendship and mercy and compassion and the generosity of God. And so to have the grace of God, there is absolutely nothing like it. It's it's the smile of God upon your life. And James wants us to experience all of God's grace. James wants us to experience as much of God's goodness and favor and kindness as is humanly possible. We are in, according to James and according to the New Testament, a relationship with the Lord that is tantamount to a marital relationship between a husband and a wife. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 2, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. And in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul also said uh, that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and laid down his life for her. And so in this relationship that we're in, the grace of God is flowing. The smile, the kindness, the friendship, the mercy, the compassion of God flow in the direction of the believer. However, the question we should ask is, are there things that I can invite into my life? Are there practices that I can adopt Are there attitudes within the heart that could potentially block me from the experience of God's grace? I think it's careful. It's important to carefully say it. And that's in that way. God's grace is flowing and God's grace does not stop flowing. But there are certain things that we can do to pull ourselves out of the flow of his grace and to position ourselves in an entirely different place altogether. Now, I'm not referring to salvation or justification necessarily. I think that James here is in a sanctification passage of scripture, and we want to experience the grace of God in this life. And so our relationship with him must be protected and enjoyed. Protected from what we would ask? Well, the first things James will tell us here in James chapter four, verse one, is that we must protect our relationship with God from the wrong passions that reside within. Notice what James writes, verse one, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So James here bursts onto this section of James chapter four by describing this horrible scene uh, inside the church at that time. There was quarrels, there were fights, There was wars, there was murder. And, you know, I mean, it's such a stark contrast with the way that chapter three ended. He spoke of those who sow in peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. But here we have those who are quarreling and fighting. 
And I love what James does. He doesn't attempt to referee these quarrels and fights. His goal is not to figure out who is right and who is wrong. Instead, he asks a question. What causes these quarrels and these fights among you? His goal, in other words, is to get to the source of the problem. He wants to deal with the root issue. This is a great question for Christian parents to ask their children, to prime them for the gospel and the need for a personal relationship with Jesus. Why is this happening and what causes this? James answers the question in verse 1 by saying, Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Quite often, our own passions are often the things that keep us from enjoying God as much as we could. We might want to blame others. We might want to blame the world. We might want to blame the devil. But James tells us to look within. Paul, of course, in Galatians 5 verse 17 said, The desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And these passions, James tells us, are at war within us. There is this military-like battle that is raging within the life of a believer. And what appears to be happening here for these people that James was writing to is that they were continually feeding the flesh. And as they fed the flesh, as they fed the old man, uh, the flesh was gaining victory over the spirit in their lives. And so it's important for a believer to say, listen, what is the cause? There is a thing inside of me that if it goes unchecked, I will drift towards a life of sin and a life of rebellion. And so we must pour into the word of God and the spirit of God and so to the Spirit, so that we might of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Now, James then gives some of the results of these desires. They are very intense. Verse 2, he says, You desire and do not have, so you murder. Now, the first result of this fleshiness and their own desires was actually murder. It might not be literal, but it's literally possible. Uh, There was probably hatred that was going on there in, in the church that James was writing to, not to mention the kinds of sin that produce death in others, sexual lust, killing a spouse, monetary greed, killing a future, desires for pleasure, killing fruit. And so he says, you murder. Number two, he says, verse two, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. These unchecked desires within them were producing strife and rage and battles between one another. Everybody defending themselves and standing up for their own turf. Number three in verse two, he says, you do not have because you do not ask. I think this indicates a real emptiness inside of their lives. And that's what these unchecked desires produce in a person's life. We pursue them, we chase them down, thinking that they'll lead us to life, but they actually lead us to a life of complete emptiness. 
That's what was occurring amongst these people. You do not have, he says, because you do not ask. And finally, verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now, this is wild because I think what James is saying is that their selfishness was so strong that it even chased them into the holiest of places, into their life of prayer. I don't know that James was even necessarily giving them a lesson on how to pray. Listen, you don't have because you don't ask. Or, uh, you know, when you ask, you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. I think he was pointing out, however, that their unchecked selfish desires had grown to the point that they would even bring it into their relationship with God. It behooves a believer to feed their spiritual man as much as possible. Galatians 6, verse 7 and 8, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And so often someone will expect that they can sow to the flesh never sowing to the Spirit, never in the Word of God, barely in church services, barely serving the body of Christ, if at all, barely giving of their time and their treasure, barely investing in any way, shape, or form at all, and they're sowing to the flesh, expecting to reap from the Spirit eternal life. But Paul tells us that's not how it works. You sow to the flesh, you of the flesh reap corruption. And when you sow to the spirit, you will from the spirit reap eternal life. And these people that James wrote to were absolutely reaping corruption as they had sown to the flesh. Now, another danger is not just our, you know, wrong behaviors, but really, and passions, but wrong loves, wrong loves. He says in verse four, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, it is a very Old Testament type of writing when James refers to these believers, Jewish believers who would be more familiar with the Old Testament, when he refers to them as adulterous people. In other words, he's telling them that they were guilty of spiritual adultery. Now, up to this point in the letter, James has over and over again been referring to them as brothers, taking a very friendly attitude. But here he calls them adulterers or adulterous people. It's in the feminine form, indicating that we're the bride of Christ. And when you read the Old Testament, what you discover is that one of the most penetrating and convicting descriptions of Israel during times of rebellion was that of an adulteress. I remember years ago traveling to the nation of Israel on a tour of the Holy Land, you know, to see all these biblical sites and everything. And, you know, I enjoyed the Temple Mount. I enjoyed the Wailing Wall. I enjoyed... Uh, you know, so many different sites. I think I especially enjoy the region of the Galilee. It's a little more natural still and uh, reminiscent of the time of Christ, I'm sure. Great ruins to observe and all of that. But one of the most humbling places for me, one of the places that has made the biggest impact in my own heart 
was way up in Dan in the north of Israel, where they've excavated the site of an altar that Jeroboam had built for the people of Israel. You remember Solomon's son, Rehoboam, had been the king in Israel. He was very harsh, however, so 10 tribes in the north broke off and formed their own union under a man named Jeroboam. And Jeroboam was worried that the people would go back down to Jerusalem, which was part of Rehoboam's territory, uh, simply so that they could worship in this new temple that Solomon had built. And so instead of encouraging them to go and worship God and encouraging them to be reunited with their people, he discouraged all of that by building a two new worship centers in Bethel and up in the north in Dan so that the people could go and offer sacrifices to these false deities, so to speak. He called it the worship of the Lord, but it was uh, idolatry 101. And God sent prophet after prophet after prophet to rebuke that habit and that practice in the nation of Israel. And they were eventually uh, decimated by the Assyrians because of specifically that crime. And I remember going to Israel and they've excavated the site of that worship in the north in Dan and just standing there, realizing that this was a piece of real estate that God absolutely hated. He hated what was happening there. He loved the people of Israel, but they were like a cheating spouse wandering from God there at that site. God felt so strongly about this that in the prophet Hosea's life, he called Hosea to typify that relationship. He told Hosea at the outset of his ministry to take a wife of harlotry. And so he married this woman and eventually after having some children and growing a family, she departed from Hosea's good home in order to go to a life of prostitution. And then God eventually told Hosea to go again and take back his wife into his house, announcing to Hosea in chapter 3, verse 1, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods. You know, the reality is that the Lord loves us. The Lord owns us. The Lord has brought us into covenant relationship with him. And so often we take sin so lightly. We consider it a, a, a minor thing. We consider it a silly thing when someone wants to live a consecrated life. But God, he sees his people and he loves his people. He cares for his people. He wants them to be continuing in that covenant relationship with him. That's why James says, you adulterous people, don't you know that this friendship with the world, 
you know, not friends with people that are in the world. We should love the people of the world. But the world system, the things the world does, the way that they live a morally separate life from God, their practice, their ideology. James says friendship with that is enmity with God and you're actually making yourself. This is the sad result. You're making yourself an enemy of God. God has not moved, but you have moved. So he says in verse five, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. I think the second great result, the sad result of, of giving yourself over to spiritual adultery. Number one, God becomes your enemy. But number two, God becomes jealous over you. Now, verse five is a difficult verse to translate exactly and specifically. And one of the things that's difficult about it is that it appears that James is quoting from the Old Testament. He says, the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. And people have looked for a specific quotation from the Old Testament that says this specific phrase uh, to no avail. In just a moment, James is going to quote very directly from the book of Proverbs. Here's what I think personally James is saying. I think he's saying, listen, you don't have to read one verse. You can read the whole Bible. And as you read the whole Bible, what you'll discover is that God yearns jealously for his people. He longs for them. He desires them. He embraces them. He wants them. And so often we walk around with our heads hung low, saying that no one wants us, no one is interested in us, when there is the God of the universe yearning for us, yearning for fellowship with us and relationship with us. I do not know why, but he longs for it. He desires it. So James says, verse 6, he gives more grace, more grace. How much grace does God give? Well, it's always more. That's the answer. However much grace you've received up to this point, the Lord is willing to give more. He's always willing to give more. And I, I don't know exactly what James is referencing here. Perhaps he's saying that God gives more grace. His grace is more than his jealousy. Perhaps his grace is more than our passions and our worldliness. Perhaps his grace is more than his standards. But all we know is that he's not saying here, listen, there's a cup or a jug or a cooler or a pool or a lake or an ocean of God's grace, but a river of God's grace, a continually flowing river of God's grace. He gives more grace. And some of the keys to drinking in this grace, James mentions in verse 6 and 7. Therefore, it says, verse 6, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God is always against those who are proud. This is actually a military term. God opposes the proud. And he, here's the way that we access his grace. He gives grace to the humble. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Humility taps you into the grace of God. 
just seeing yourself as lowly, seeing yourself as needy, seeing yourself as a person who is thirsty, who is not sufficient in and of yourself, viewing yourself in that way works wonders as the grace of God flows into your life. Beyond that, he says in verse 7, submit yourselves therefore to God. Another way that we can receive God's grace is through submission. To say, speak, Lord, your servant hears, just like Samuel did in 1 Samuel 3, verse 10. And, as well, he says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. We aren't to battle the devil directly, but we're to resist him. We're to be smart. Ephesians 4, verse 27 says, give no opportunity to the devil. We're to be ready for this battle. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Ephesians 6 verse 11. And we're to be watchful. 1 Peter 5 verse 8. Knowing that our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Now in verse 8, James continues on speaking about this relationship with God. He says, a few different things that should help us, I think, in our walk with him in a real practical sense. Number one, verse eight, the first part of the verse, he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. It's very important, I think, for a believer to know that when you pursue the Lord, as you're covered by the blood of Jesus, a believer, a co-heir with Christ, as you pursue God, James promises God will draw near to you. You draw near to God and he will draw near to you. We can have that confidence inside of our lives to approach boldly his throne of grace, to find grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. I think Enoch, of course, is a great example of this kind of life listed in Genesis chapter 5. Enoch walked with God for 300 years after his son Methuselah was born at around his 65th birthday. And so for 300 years, Enoch walked with God. Enoch enjoyed a relationship with the Lord. And Hebrews 11 verse 5 says that Enoch did that by faith. And in verse 6 said, and without faith, it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And so there's a special presence of God for those who will draw near to the Lord. You attend church and you sit under the teaching of God's word so that you can pursue the Lord and hear from the Lord. You're drawing near to him. Well, he will draw near to you. You open up your Bible in the morning to spend time with God and he will draw near to you. He will draw near to us. That's the first thing that we need to know here that God will show up if we show up. Uh, then he goes on and he says in verse the second half of verse eight, cleanse your hands, you sinners and purify your hearts, you double minded. And so we're to cleanse ourselves in one sense. Now, this might be an odd thought for some of us because when we came to Christ, we know that we were cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And so what does it mean when James tells us that we're to cleanse our hands and purify our hearts? 
I believe that James is not talking about justification, but sanctification. He's not saying that we need to positionally cleanse ourselves, but practically cleanse ourselves. Hand washing is what he refers to. Cleanse your hands. And that's something that you do from time to time to prevent uh, sickness from coming upon you, to present uncleanness. Jesus said to his disciples when he washed their feet, he said the one who is bathed does not need to wash, you know, his whole body, except only his feet, but is completely clean. We walk through this world and we do need to be cleansed. We do need to be cleansed. And of course, one way that we can be cleansed is by the word of God, the very thing that you're doing right now, hearing the word of God explained and taught and read. As you hear that, uh, the water of his word is cleansing your life and your soul. Psalm 119 verse 9, how can a young man keep his way pure by guarding it according to your word? I've been thinking a lot lately just about the way that we read the Bible. It's so contradictory to the way that we read so many things in this day and age. There are no hyperlinks inside of the pages of scripture. It's a very long book and uh, very linear in thought, which is like nothing that we find in the internet world. Everything there is short and not linear. You can bounce all over the place. So our minds need to be trained so that we can cleanse our hands and purify our hearts with the word of God. Verse 9, he says, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, unfortunately, some people, when they read that verse, think that that is supposed to be the perpetual attitude of all believers at all times. And actually, the, the truth is, is that this is supposed to be the temporary attitude of some believers at some times, or maybe all believers at some times. And these believers that James was writing to, because of their sin, they had a reason to mourn and weep and be gloomy. You know, when you go to a funeral, you act a certain way. And when you go to a wedding, you act a certain way. You're different in whatever setting you might be in at the moment. And James is shocked that these people are laughing and joyful. There should have been sorrow inside of their hearts. It's important for God's people to make sure that we do not walk around as if sin is all good. God had said to the people of Israel in Isaiah 22, verse 12 to 13, In the day the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for baldness and wearing sackcloth, and behold, what did he find? Joy and gladness, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So we should not celebrate when there ought to be a humility before the Lord, humbled because of our sin. So he says in verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. And just understand and believe that as you seek the Lord, he will lift up your life. For the believer, the way up is down and the way down is up. And so uh, we have to be a humble people. You humble yourself before God. You privately humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt your life in whatever way he chooses to do. 
Do not speak, verse 11, against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. Now, this is a tricky little thing that James is saying. He says, listen, if you judge or speak evil against your brother, you actually judge and speak evil of the law. Now, he's not saying that we speak evil of the Ten Commandments or the Old Testament law when we speak evil of our brothers in Christ. Now, the law that he's referring to is the law of liberty and the law of love. And that's the way he speaks of it in, in uh, chapter 2, verse 8 and 12. And so there is this law of love that we should love our neighbor as ourselves. And when we ridicule our brother, it's as if we are ridiculing the law of Jesus himself saying, it's not that important to care for my neighbor. There, there is only one lawgiver, verse 12, and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Uh, we've got to remember that God is the perfect judge. Paul said in Romans 14, verse 4, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Uh, we're not good at it. We're not skilled at it. We should leave the judgment of God's servants to God himself. And if we do, it, we will be strengthened in our relationship with the Lord. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.